0: Hey guys, a couple quick notes before we start. The logistics for this pod got a little wonky as our recording equipment was in multiple places and I came down with a nasty cold this week, which I did not want to come in to record in this COVID crazy world we're living in. As such, the sound quality is a little wonky. We are working on a solution for this in the future, but for now, please bear with us. I'm feeling fine now, no COVID for me yet. But but in my place, Sam hosted this one. Thank you so much, Sam, for stepping into the host chair. Uh, Next thing, as always, support us on Patreon, Patreon patreon.com slash Loud or OntarioLoud.ca. It helps us do more stuff. We recently took an extra mic so we can all record remotely through however long we need to be in quarantine so we can keep bringing you the same podcast that you love. We also talk a little bit about the federal government actions here, but the very day we recorded, the federal government announced even more measures to combat COVID, including 20 billion in stimulus support for the economy. So uh, keep that in mind. That's why we don't actually talk about what that package ended up being. It came out the afternoon that we recorded. Everything seems to be moving so quickly in this. Um, so with that in mind, onto the pod.
1: Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Sam Andre. I'm Alexi White.
2: And I'm Karima Talwar Kapoor.
1: If you are thrown off by what is happening right now, yes, podcast listeners, you've heard that correctly. A, our fearless leader Chris Martin, is under quarantine for coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and we are beyond thrilled that Garima Tawakoor is joining the Ontario Lab team as our newest co-host. Welcome, Garima. Woo!
3: Pew, 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 pew. Uh
1: I am joking about Chris. Chris is though feeling under the weather, and because of uh much vigilance has decided to stay home today which we all appreciate uh and so we are carrying on without him because nothing will stop us from getting (laughs) you fine folks the news but well, yes, we're so excited that Grima is joining us. Many of you will remember her from her multiple guest appearances on the pod. Uh, by day, she is the director of policy and research at the Maytree Foundation. And prior to that, was a manager of income security policy in the Ontario Ministry of Finance. Uh, she's also worked in higher education policy and has a master's in public health. Uh, and thankfully, unlike all of us hacks, Grima uh, is not a recovering political staffer. So we're going to have to think about our new introduction. Uh, but we are thrilled uh, to have you here. Uh, and welcome.
2: Thanks. I'm so excited for this.
1: Um, And what a better time uh, to have a public health grad than um, the Largest public health crisis in <laughs> living memory. Before we start, uh, we also just wanted to quickly mention the Ontario Lads Census, which we have been promoting at OntarioLadsCensus.ca. We have had a ton of great uh, responses so far from our listeners, uh, but please do keep them coming because we are learning a lot about what you all think of this podcast and how we can
3: improve. Yeah, it's been interesting actually. The initial responses, um, everyone's torn. There's people who want more politics, people who want more policy, people who want more interviews, people who want less interviews uh i think my favorite comment was the person who said they listened to a few episodes and they didn't find it funny or informative so they stopped listening and he recommended we switch to a newsletter format <laughs> 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 so maybe you uh, an out loud newsletter
1: coming your way soon thanks,
3: thanks for the tip <laughs> <laughs> um
1: somebody else recommended more chapo content which we will take to heart uh but no it's given us lots to think about in that in fact um, many folk uh folks have said more panel discussions on deep dive topics. And so uh, we will hopefully uh, do that soon. Um, and today uh, we're a lot is happening in the world, uh, in Canada and Ontario um, over the past few weeks. And in fact, since we wrote this introduction, Sophie, um, um, Now I'm going to forget her last name. I actually
3: added it in this morning. (laughs)
1: Uh, Has tested positive for coronavirus. um, And maybe Justin has it too and is not saying so. We don't know, um, but a lot is happening. Uh, we're going to dig into that, the coronavirus, COVID-19, because uh, it's all anybody can talk about, uh, but also the Ontario government's flip-flop on funding for rape crisis centers, uh, a really interesting new report on tax expenditures, not two phrases you hear go together very often, released by the Financial Accountability Office. But first, maybe a quick uh, check-in, of The given how much uh, airtime we gave to it. Uh, the Ontario Liberal Party has a new leader, uh, one of the six that we uh, talked to on this podcast, and in what was very much predicted, uh, Stefan Del Duca won 59% of the delegates on the first ballot at the leadership convention on March 7th, and become the leader of... The Ontario Liberals. So, congratulations to Stephen. He is now turning his attention to party building and preparing for the next election. He's announced that he's bringing in Don Guy, who was uh, the primary campaign architect of the McGuinty era, to lead his transition team and presumably the campaign in 2022, though they haven't said that. We are going to be working on an episode on all things uh, related to Stephen's victory and what that means for uh, the party and for Ontario politics in the future. But we really just wanted to provide that update. Any immediate thoughts? Anybody?
3: I mean, I, so I wasn't at the convention. Uh, so Sam, I'd love to hear what you think about um, the crowd, the energy, uh, the acceptance speech, all that stuff, how it all went. Um, I thought the media coverage, though, was quite positive, And that, I think, speaks to the fact that the convention was well organized and uh, seemed to go off without a hitch, which is good. The, the media pieces were pretty, um, I guess, things you would expect. Who is this guy? Uh, he has a long road to bring the Liberal Party back to, um, to power or even to um, you know, party status. You know, you saw the obligatory immediate responses from the other parties, which were interesting and not uh, perhaps surprising in any way. Trying to link Stephen back to the uh, scandals of previous Liberal governments, that kind of thing. Uh, but overall, I thought it was um, a good, successful um, media coverage of the of the convention. So, what was it like being there in person?
1: Yeah, I mean, so for a party that has you know less than ten staff, I thought they put on a really impressive showing, and it seemed you know, to your point in the coverage to uh, go off without a hitch. And I thought the energy was really good. There was about 3000 uh, people there and it was great. Uh, the Kathleen Wynn tribute on the Friday night as sort of the outgoing leader was super emotional and everyone uh, was crying. The folks who did um, the Kathleen running ads uh, produced the video like montage of her. And so it was like very sweeping and emotional, um uh and and Kathleen's speech was great. I actually thought Steven's uh speech was the best I'd seen him. I thought it was um quite good. And, you know, I think everyone at the convention kind of knew Stephen was gonna win. So like maybe the fervent energy of a convention wasn't really there. Um and I think especially when the candidates on the Saturday were giving their speeches, it kind of felt like a bit like, well everyone knows what's happening here because mm-hmm. the first ballot voting was um, done by them. That said, I thought both uh, Kate Graham and uh, Mitzi Hunter's uh, speeches were really good. Alvin brought out a robot. Like, there was, you know, there were fun <laughs> moments. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, I definitely felt too like there was a lot of unity and purpose coming out of the convention. Like, I don't think there was negative, bad blood energy. Um, and I think. I think it's credit to the team, to John Frazier, to everybody that, you know, basically two years on from seven seats, like the party feels like it's ready to go fight in 2022 and that you could certainly feel that energy there. Um, So it was good. I don't have much negative to say. Moving on. To the issue that is going to dominate everything, uh, everywhere for the foreseeable future, you are probably listening to this podcast right now in self-isolation at home, maybe. Uh, <laughs> of the global pandemic. First, a disclaimer, this thing is moving very quickly. Uh, you know, if we had recorded this 48 hours ago, Tom Hanks um, and the NBA would still be playing. Um, but uh, we are recording right now on Friday, March 13th. And so all of the info you're going to get right now is probably out of date by the time you hear it. Nevertheless, Grima our newest podcaster, and also, by the way, a public health grad. Have we mentioned that? Do you mind giving us a bit of a rundown on where things stand right now?
2: Sure. Thanks, Sam. Um, I think it's really important to first note that the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared COVID-19 to be a global pandemic um, this week. And Wednesday has been a crazy day this entire week. It was the same day that the Trump administration in the United States um, banned essentially um, Europeans, um, from traveling to America for the next couple of weeks, at the very least, with the exception of people traveling from the United Kingdom. I will put in parentheses that this is not an evidence-based decision to be made. And so there's lots of discussion out in Twitterverse around the motivations um, for the American administration to be to do something like this. In Italy, the situation is getting very, very, very dire. There's 15,000 confirmed cases, and an Italian healthcare body issued a framework to physicians this week to prepare them for the idea of having to make care decisions based off of the principles of distributive justice and the appropriate allocation of healthcare resources. And that essentially means that, you know, despite physicians really wanting to try to provide the best treatment that they possibly can to everybody that shows up uh, with COVID-19 or any illness um, in hospitals. The demand is just so high that physicians are now having to triage how much treatment and support they provide to patients depending on prognosis and how well they're uh, likely to recover from COVID-19. Here in Canada, Sam, you started with now Sophie Gregoire Trudeau uh, being diagnosed with COVID-19 and and is in self-isolation. The Prime Minister is also in self-isolation for the next 14 days. And the Canadian government expects anywhere from 30% to 70% of Canadians becoming infected over time. And that's the healthcare side of this entire thing. But what this does is it it really shapes how we move, how we sort of interact in society, what we buy, what we don't buy. And this is having severe economic implications. And we first started to see that earlier this week, with significant um, decreases in the cost of oil, which put overnight evaporated billions of dollars in revenues for the Alberta budget. But also the downstream impacts on the Canadian economy are seeming to be um, severe and the and the federal government is coming out with a number of different fiscal stimulus plans. It's looking like to help stave off a recession. That's the heavy news. But in the good news, the WHO did say that we know that dogs can't get the virus. It's good to know that public health people still have some humor (laughs) at a time of crisis. Um, Yeah. I think that, you know, as we, as much as the public health scare is keeping many people awake at night. It really reveals how important public health is uh, to a functioning society and economy. And the federal government came out with some proposed plans um, earlier this week for a fiscal stimulus. Half of the $1 billion plan that they announced earlier this week um, is to be transferred to provinces and territories for healthcare. A quarter of it is going into research and some of it into international assistance. And I don't think at this point enough to stave off projections of a recession and potential layoffs, and so what? I, what I'm hoping is that on Friday today, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland is going to make another announcement, and hopefully, there's more announcements on how workers and caregivers are going to be supported during this time.
1: Awesome! Uh, thank you for that rundown. Obviously, a lot to unpack. Uh, what do we think so far of the federal response? Uh, has it been enough? Um, what are people's reactions?
3: I obviously don't want to second guess the public health experts. I mean, there's, I think there's been a lot of people passing judgment there. Uh, I just, They're all doing their best, and I think they've done admirably. And on that side of things, I think Canada's in good hands. My concern, I think, is, and I heard this in Garima's uh, recap there of the policies that have been rolled out so far, is more with the knock-on effects of all of these huge interruptions that affect how we live, how we work, um, basically every aspect of our lives, Um, and who's going to bear the brunt of the negative side effects of these effects, uh, these changes. A lot of people will take for granted that you can just uh, upend your life and, and continue on and that the things that you rely on will be there when you go back, that you'll, you know, be able to get through Periods of difficulty uh, because you have things like a reasonable cash flow um, and cushions and uh, childcare and all these things that we, many people, take for granted. Um, but when there are people who face uh, vulnerable situations, um, those factors tend to interact with these kinds of disruptions and are severely exacerbated by. The by instability like this, and so I'm mostly worried about you know the people who uh, are going to not be able to to cope with with this instability without some assistance. Uh, so hopefully, we'll see more on the policy side, especially the social policy side, to help in that regard. And I think it for me, it just it. It's interesting to hear people talking a lot about the fiscal side of this. Um, anytime there's a big disruption, you know, everybody immediately starts talking about stimulus packages. What is the government's capacity to make a big financial investment to go into deficit? Uh, and there's a lot of people who uh, talk nauseam about how it's so important that we have our fiscal house in order so that we have the, the room in fiscal policy side to make these investments. And you know, our debt to GP ratios are okay and all these kinds of things. And you hear the conservatives saying that the liberals haven't been doing that. And then the liberal saying, actually, everything is pretty good fiscally. And we do have the space to make these kinds of investments if we need to. None of that conversation seems to happen on the social policy side. And I guess I don't understand why we don't take the same lessons on fiscal policy and say, when times are good, maybe we should be making sure that fewer people are living in poverty, that more people have access to childcare, that all of these services are there. So that when times are bad, these people's lives are not deeply interrupted, if not, if not jeopardized in some instances. And for some reason, when it comes to people, there's no similar preparation or thought about the cycle and what is going to happen to them when shit inevitably hits the fan as it seems to do in a pretty cyclical way.
2: Yeah, I think that that's spot on, Alexi. And you know, one thing that lots of people are saying on the health side of things is really listen to what the experts are saying, right? And so there's a lot of noise out there in suggesting that health experts and public health experts are making this a bigger deal than it is. But you know that your public health system is working when you don't actually notice it, right? Public health is is at its peak best working when you don't feel an interruption in your everyday life. And I think When we draw on parallels in fiscal policy and in social policy, this is when we really do need to think about, just as we're doing in public health now, sort of putting political persuasions aside, really heeding the expertise of people. And when you do listen to economic experts, when you do listen to social policy experts, it's Canada federally does have room for significant fiscal stimulus. Provinces also have some room to help complement what the federal government is doing. And so there is room there. And I don't think that narratives borrowed from the 1990s about how we spend public revenues should be ported into 2020. And that seems to be the cycle that we keep running into. And it's sad to see even as we're dealing with the global pandemic.
1: So, maybe uh, switching gears a bit to Ontario, at the recommendation of public health, Ontario is now closing all public schools for the two weeks after March break, so for a total of three weeks, and then said they would reevaluate after that. And Doug Ford was maybe in a bit of hot water yesterday, uh, for a few hours before that, encouraging people to go away for March break and have fun was the quote. Um, as several other provinces were announcing that if you did travel, you would have to self-isolate for 14 days. Uh so I guess what are folks' reactions to how the province has been reacting? They've announced a hundred million dollar contingency fund in their upcoming budget for Um, unanticipated expenses and have postponed the public health budget cuts. So a lot happening on the provincial side too. Uh, What do we make of how the Ford government is handling this?
2: Yeah, I think that the Ford government can do more and provincial governments can do more. There's a lot of debate around undoing some of the policy reversals that this provincial government has done on paid sick leave days and bringing those back to people, for people, so that employees feel protected and do have some protection in the event that they have to take some time off. I think though so there's the labor protection side of things that I think this government uh, should really be focusing on, but in terms of potentially mild recession or deep recession coming our way, I think that there is room for the the provincial government to actually help put additional dollars into the pockets of people that spend money and don't use their tax windfalls to put into capital markets. And so that actually does mean perhaps increasing the amount of income support that's provided to people receiving social assistance. You could do that through a special payment so that people can sort of ride, help sort of stave off any big implications that they may be experiencing as a result of economic changes. You can make increases to the Ontario Child Benefits so that families with children who receive support can also get a bit of hand up. You could provide advanced payments to people that under this government's new lift tax credit, the low income individuals and families tax credit through tax season, they'll know who is eligible for that and they could make advanced payments for people who receive that credit. But also I think you could make special payments to everybody that needs support. I think what's missing in this dialogue around workers and and ensuring that people people who are working have protections from any time off that they take is that the government has demonstrated that it is willing to help caregivers offset any additional costs that they see. And we see that in education, actually, with the government's decision to um, help offset any costs that parents incurred during strike days. And I don't think I mean, it's a separate policy discussion on whether that is a good idea or not. But I think that the mechanisms certainly exist, and they've demonstrated their willingness to use them. And so they should be able to use them now and demonstrate some leadership here.
3: Yeah, I agree with all of that. A couple other small ideas. I mean, Green has gone through a ton of really great policy suggestions. I would like something like an eviction freeze, I think would make a lot of sense. You have a lot of people in the gig economy, for instance, who might have uh, interruptions to their work, won't be eligible for EI, won't have the ability to rely on social assistance to replace the level of, of their sort of living standards that they're used to, because I mean, social assistance is not enough to live on. And so if you were to see a wave of people being evicted, that would obviously be bad for public health, but also just bad for people getting evicted as a result of having interruptions in their work. And so I could see that being a useful tactic as well. And then mortgage holidays to prevent foreclosures, both of those things. Eliminating work requirements is a pretty easy one for people on social assistance. So on Ontario Works, there is a work requirement. It's it's pretty easy to waive and is waived quite frequently at the local level. But just the government saying, look, we're going to just waive this requirement for now, given that work is pretty interrupted could just save people a little bit of a headache. I'm also worried about the corrections system. Nobody really talks about it, but there are many examples of the interactions between (laughs) jails and pandemics that are uh, quite scary. And I just think that's something that provinces and federal governments uh, need to keep their eye on and that I just haven't seen a lot about recently. Um, So hopefully on the policy side, uh, the province is um, going to be taking just as much action as they did to help parents during the, uh, the, the labor and discussions with teachers as Grima mentioned. I don't know if I'm uh, confident in that, but uh, we'll see. I
1: thought um, just maybe moving off of the policy onto the politics, like it's kind of interesting to watch, you know, two of the major reforms to the labor legislation that they repealed, which listeners, long time listeners will recall we had Kevin Flynn on to talk about, um, which was the two sick days um, for all employees, two paid sick days, and then not requiring a doctor's note Both, you know, obviously important elements to be discussing in the context of this outbreak. Uh, And so the government, I think, rightfully has been getting kind of dunked on to bring those back, which they've resisted so far. It will be interesting to see if that um, changes. Um, And then it's interesting, actually, um, Kathleen Wynne just this morning was kind of defending Doug Ford's comments about March break and going to travel saying, you know, she thinks he was trying to calm the waters. And I do think leaders around the world, but also here at home are, there's this really hard line to walk between causing panic and rightfully preparing people. And I think folks are, I think, doing the best they can and deferring a lot to the chief medical officers, which I think makes a lot of sense that this is um, tricky and maybe just kind of the last question about politics so if you're the opposition right now so either you know Andrew Shear, Jagmeet Singh or Stephen Del Duca and uh, Andrew Horvath um what's your strategy what do you think sense right now these are tricky times where obviously everyone is looking to their leaders for um, guidance um what do you how do you think they're doing
3: yeah um I- I think it's it is tough. You're right, and I I think uh, a lot of people have criticized uh, either criticized the government um, for things that um, the federal and provincial governments for things that. Um, Politicians have said that may not have, um, you know, been true 48 hours later, which obviously we have to give people, you know, a little bit of slack on. But people have also been criticizing the opposition parties at both levels for, you know, for being too aggressive and "quote unquote" like turning a pandemic into a political win for them. And uh, so it is something that opposition parties need to need to consider. To me, the important distinction would be between sort of the the public health non partisan advice that is coming um, and and really trying to promote that and using your ability to, for instance, ask questions to the government in question period to try to sort of uh, help Drive the flow of information to to clarify things for people, rather than to try to score political points. That said, I think there's what we've talked about mostly in this podcast, which is where the criticism can, I think, much more freely come in. Is what is the government doing on all those other areas where they're making political decisions that have to do with the effects of this thing? So, when it comes to public safety, I think it's you know hold your fire and and uh, focus on do You know, everyone just assume everyone is doing their best to try to promote public safety. But um, when it comes to the distributive impacts of this thing, uh, when it comes to helping the vulnerable, when it comes to keeping the economy going, I think those topics are much more uh, free and people should be ready to uh, say what they need to say to get this going. So so Stephen Del Duca's tweet, for example, where he he mentioned, uh, you know, supporting uh, the change to close schools for three weeks, but mentioning that the government needs to do something about school breakfast programs. I think that's a great example of being supportive on public safety side of things, but also saying like, this has implications. What are you doing politically as a government to actually help those people? The budget, I think, is going to be really interesting to see because the Financial Accountability Office is projecting the government's going to come in with about a $3 billion under budget by about $3 billion this year. So they projected, I think, $9 billion, and it's going to be closer to $6 billion. Deficit, And so there is going to be some room for the opposition parties to say, look, like you guys have supposedly a path back to balance. You're well exceeding it. Doesn't that mean that you could be spending that extra $3 billion or or, for, or money next year in helping people with this crisis and still s- supposedly make your fiscal targets? So I think there is some opportunity there, for example, to, to press the government.
1: Okay. Moving on on March 4th uh, news emerged that the ministry of the attorney general was planning to end a million dollars of funding that was temporarily being provided to Ontario's 42 rape crisis centers in 2019. That uh, $1 million was on top of $14.8 million in annual funding from uh the Ministry of the Attorney General to rape crisis centers. And because of that $1 million, the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers says wait times decreased from an average of 18 months to six months for victims seeking services. After a day or so of taking flack for this decision to not uh, renewing this $1 million in temporary funding, the government then announced they are replacing the $1 million in temporary funding with $2 million in permanent funding, but that this new funding would come from a different ministry, social services, and would be earmarked for victims of human trafficking as part of the Ford government's new uh, investment on a human trafficking strategy. So despite the government's insistence that the rape crisis centers are all quite happy and pleased with this news, the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers put out a rather tepid statement expressing mostly confusion at what this all really means for them on the ground. Um, So guys, this is yet another uh, cut turned into comms crisis uh, for this government that can't seem to get its story straight. They were defending the cuts just 24 hours before they announced $2 million of new funding. What do we take away from this, both, I guess, politically, but also the substance of the new policy?
3: Well, so, okay, The, the fact that we are choosing first of all between whether we should have an 18 month or a 6 month wait time for getting access to like for instance counseling for rape victims is just insane like I, how how are we not doing Everything we can to make that wait list zero right away. Like it's, it just feels like we're we're just arguing over such a small piece of this. one. clearly the sector needs additional support, and we're talking about like it's fourteen million, almost fifteen million in annual funding. A few million dollars like is not that much in the grand scheme of the government's budget, and we could make sure that victims of rape actually get access to counseling right away? Like, how is that not just the basic starting point? Putting all that aside, I I think what probably happened here is another case of ministries not talking to one another and the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing or just being out of sync on the communications of this. So probably somebody somewhere knew that that social services was going to be stepping up with this additional funding through the human trafficking plan, which is a big plan and has been something that the Ford government's been working on for a long time, talking about for a long time. But I guess just nobody put the pieces together that if you like take something away before you've actually told people that you're giving them something else, that obviously it's going to create a communications crisis for you. So it's just, I mean, it seems like poor comms planning to sort of let slip quietly. Oh yeah, by the way, we're cutting your budget by a million dollars and not also saying, and at the same time, don't worry because we are taking care of you. Here's two other million dollars. And so it's just, I mean, it's, just plain mismanagement probably brought on by a lack of communication between ministries
1: which they have a habit of doing right like it's quite yeah
3: that's not new
1: two years into government it continues to baffle me
2: yeah so i sit on the board of an organization that provides partner assault response programming um for people that um inflict harm through intimate partner violence on their partners and so and this is a, a ministry of of the attorney general program and there's a lot of these PAR programs and organizations out in the province. Uh, When the $1 million in additional funding was announced last year for rape crisis centers, um, PAR agencies were a really excited to know that the government was sort of investing in this space again, but also, um, There are some parallels between the experiences of rape crisis centers and par agencies over the past 20 years in that real funding over time hasn't increased. And so organizations on the ground are operating at basically the same funding levels uh, for decades with the same staffing levels, uh, doing as much as they possibly can with as and trying to provide the best services they can to people um, but have very little resources to do it and so I think what we're seeing here is there was with a lot of enthusiasm last year this idea that maybe the government wasn't going to be um, seeking expenditure reductions in this space given how uh, necessary spending is in this area but um, but they haven't and 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 the announcement um, that they were going to sort of pull back the one million I think sort of really sent um, nervous waves throughout the sector and and the implications of of underfunding the entire sector, whether it 's for par agencies or rape crisis centers, is that um is the ability to hire people and staff with some sort of protection for incredibly tough work that they undertake is really challenging. Uh, Many of the people that are employed are precariously employed. um, And getting people who are clients of these organizations, the best uh, services that they can get, unfortunately takes a hit as a result. And I don't think that that's where Ontarians want to see people or how Ontarians want to see people being treated uh, through services that they should be receiving.
3: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Can I? I'll just add that um, the rape crisis centers, the Coalition Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers, uh, they which represents think twenty nine of the over forty centers, has also said that the rise of the Me Too and Times Up movements um, has resulted in them seeing a large upswing in calls and requests for support, Um, and so. I mean, we're also seeing in stats can data that the number of police reported sexual assaults is increasing, um, which maybe because of the police reported side of that or the sexual assault side of that. But either way, it's up almost 19 percent year over year for the last two years. Um, so, I mean, this is an area that needs investment desperately. And the idea of just sort of freezing staffing and funding levels at the 1990s levels and saying you do your best. Uh, that's just crazy.
1: Okay, thank you. And I think, you know, good healthy context about, you know, how much 1 million or 2 million is in relationship to the overall Ontario budget. Maybe we will quickly touch on our last topic, which is tax policy. So a few weeks ago, the Financial Accountability Office released a fascinating report on tax expenditures in Ontario. And for those who are not familiar, those are basically uh, benefits that are delivered through the tax systems, tax deductions, exemptions, credits, etc. cetera. Um, these are benefits basically that reduce the amount of tax you owe and transfer money to either people or businesses. And so they cost the government money in the sense that it's revenue not collected. Um, and according to the FAO's analysis in 2019-20, there were 149 of these uh, programs offered by government at a total cost of $44 billion. A uh, hundred of these are issued by the province. Uh, well, as if tax expenditures were identified separately in the Ontario budget compared to the province's program spending, tax expenditures would be the second highest spending uh, for the sector after the health sector. Uh, Interesting context. So first, I think it's great that the Financial Accountability Office exists to continue to sort of shine lights on uh, shadowy policy areas that uh, otherwise would not get much attention like normal program spending. Um, So uh, maybe Alexi, give us the main highlights. uh, What should we be taking away from this report?
3: Uh, Yeah. A few things were um, interesting takeaways for me. Uh, The growth of tax expenditures is one. So tax expenditure spending is growing at about 4.4% a year on average, which far exceeds growth in either the economy or uh, program spending, which is only about 2.6%. So basically, not only is this the second largest area of spending in the government, but it's actually increasing um, more quickly than other areas. Um, and then distribution is the other really big one. So um, the FAO selected 12 of the costliest tax expenditures, um, looking at both personal income tax. Or no, looking at the personal tax, income tax system, uh, and these together represent 17 billion in provincial expenditures. And they looked at the distribution across uh, different uh, Ontario families. of the uh, families with the highest incomes or the 20% with uh, families with the highest incomes. So those are earning over $123,000 receive 43% of the total benefit. Um, then it's, um, 18% 18% of the total benefits go to families in the second highest income quintile, so between 78,000 and 123,000. And then the remaining 60% of Ontario families get only 38% of these benefits. Um, and that's mostly because the uh, tax deductions are heavily concentrated in the top income group. Uh, and the benefits from tax credits, conversely, is more evenly distributed. So, this to me says, there's a lot of opportunity for raising revenues by closing loopholes, as they're often called, or by reducing some of these tax deductions that are overwhelmingly going to um, the richest families uh, without necessarily needing to increase actual tax rates.
1: Yeah, super interesting. And my favorite example of that was when the Kathleen Wynne government a few years ago eliminated the tuition and education tax credits and used that money um, to pay for upfront grants that was dubbed free tuition. And maybe a good example of how these sort of programs that disproportionately benefit uh, high-income people carry on for a long time because they don't have much scrutiny.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, whenever a government makes an announcement around around tax cuts, let's say, uh, to put it vaguely, uh, for people, it's making the case that it's going to help improve the everyday affordability issues that Ontarians are facing. And, that's, and the pocketbook issues that Ontarians are facing – have happened for years, for decades, and governments of all stripes um, have to confront those challenges. I think, but what we see inherent in the FAO's report, though, and seemingly unsaid, is is that tax expenditure decisions are a series of trade-off decisions. And what we've essentially done as a province is say that we're willing to put more money in the pockets of people directly to somehow address affordability challenges, but actually not build the systems that people rely on that actually um, create the affordability affordability challenges that they face. So be it in, in childcare and in housing and prescription medications, there's a number of systems that we could be building up as a result of different policy decisions, and we have not done so. And I think that if you ask the average Ontarian of whether they actually, you know, whether the tax um, rebate that they might get, or the, the check that they might get at the end of the year after filing their taxes whether it really makes a difference for some people it certainly does but for a lot of people and especially those at the higher end of the income distribution they end up investing that and that's not going back into the everyday goods and services trade uh, economy that helps our economy grow and and so i think it's about making different decisions policy wise
1: okay we will leave it there um And that's all the time
0: we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I think we can all agree that things really went to shit without me. And I'm just kidding. Sam, Alexi, Grima, thank you so much for pulling this pod together in my absence. I loved it, and I am worried that you'll all get designs when replacing me. And just know that I'm a fan of Game of Thrones. I have many contingencies in place. So don't come at the king. No, just kidding. I I love you guys, and thank you so much. We will be back next week with an interview with former Attorney General of Ontario Chris Bentley to talk legal aid, what legal support should look like in this province for our most vulnerable people. Really looking forward to that. It's not going to be COVID content, so if you're getting enough of that, maybe uh, somebody else for you to listen to. Ontario Loud is Alexi White, Sam Mandary. Garima Talwar Kapoor, and myself, Chris Martin. Alvin Tejo has told us he will be rejoining the podcast soon. We're just working on the details with him, but he's confirmed back, and we're so excited to have him. We are also supported by amazing volunteers, and Ayesha Anwar and Harmon Mundy who do research in comms. I want to thank you as the I want to thank you as the listener for listening. Stay safe out there in this rather unsettling and scary time. And as a last note, I want to say that Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and many nations. We honor the treaties that are still alive today, and acknowledge that Indigenous people still have to fight for their rights. And we want to do everything, uh, and we want to do everything possible to support that struggle.